A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Yes, it's the the rambly bit at the beginning of the of the thing. You know, we're all five weeks into lockdown now. <laughs> this has been a long week. Yeah, a very long week. Uh, I keep expecting the weeks to get better. <laughs> they you? sort of yeah. I don't know why. It's just my optimistic nature, Andy. But of course they don't. Um, of course, <laughs> of course they don't. <laughs> of course they do. of course they don't. My <laughs> pessimistic nature suggests otherwise. I'm not pining for nature. I've got woods in one direction and the sea in another direction. I'm very, very lucky, right? I, but I'm pining for an art gallery. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to look at any more nature. I want to, I want to look at some, <laughs> some man-made triumphs, please. I don't yeah. want to. You're sick of the spring. <laughs> I am. Yeah. It's not the same online, is it? All those pictures. It really is. Not, it's not the same as in real life. It's like yeah. the, the, uh, these attempts to have kind of social gatherings online, I find very unconvincing, I have to say. I don't know, lots of people kind of, you know, asking other people if they can hear them and drinking wine mm. with sort of rictus grins and pretending it's all fine, which it kind of isn't really. <laughs> It's like a it's like a publisher's party by any other name. <laughs> yeah, at least you get to fix your own wine, I suppose. That is true. So I recorded, uh, I'm trying to do my, my bit for uh, society and uh, inspired by Randy Newman's social distancing song. I recorded this last week and lock-listed patrons got to hear this last week, but we thought it might be nice for everyone to hear it. Beautiful. It's gorgeous, Andy. It's gorgeous. It gets it gets better each time I hear it. So that's the backlist of theme music with uh, with uh, when I changed the words. But I was so enthused by that, and also by reading Craig Brown's new book, which is about ah. the Beatles. Can you imagine a book that I would enjoy more no. than a massive six hundred page book by Craig Brown about the Beatles? There is literally no book that it designed during a lockdown as well. It's just brilliant funny we're going to talk about it on another episode but inspired by that i have uh, recorded another social distancing song but this time uh, it's a uh, a beatles related song but i've changed the words <laughs> win or lose sink or swim one thing is certain we'll never give in from me to you heart to heart we all stand apart <laughs> brilliant very good brilliant well and the, and the episode hasn't even started properly great um shall we crack on <laughs> no, I've done a whole album, and I'd like you to, <laughs> I'd like you to sit there and listen to it. There probably is an album worth, isn't there? So it must be loads of very, very good songs about not being able to touch. I'm um, in the middle of writing an email to my publisher saying, now the reason I'm, too, I'm so late with my book is twofold. One, the, the global calamity, and two, I'm recording an album of social distancing lyrics of... of Beatles cover versions and spin-offs. Is that okay with you? 
<laughs> I'm sure they'll, they'll, be, they'll, be, all they'll right. be fine. They'll be right of course, they'll be know. fine. You'll have to release it in the next three weeks. <laughs> oh, yes. It's like all great pop music, Claire. It has to. It captures a moment and then it's gone. Yes, so, uh, three, three yeah. weeks, obviously. Obviously, everything will be fine in three weeks. We have to believe. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Let's go. Okay. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in South Kensington meandering on our way from the Natural History Museum to the Albert Hall to see a Beethoven symphony performed. But we're in no hurry, distracted by the faces and the clothes of almost everyone we meet, fretting about the irregular beatings of our heart. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today from the far corners of this United Kingdom are Claire Fuller. Hello, Claire. Hello. Hello. Claire didn't start writing fiction until she was 40. Her first novel, Our Endless Numbered Days, won the 2015 Desmond Elliott Prize. Her second, Swimming Lessons, was shortlisted for the Encore Prize. And her third, Bitter Orange, is longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award. Congratulations on that. When well, yes, when... but there are there's something like 156 <laughs> novels long listed for that award. It's a, it's a brilliant. I, I actually didn't. I didn't know that. Okay, right. Okay, that's that's good. well. You know, good luck. Good luck. So publishers publishers love that prize for that very reason because the the, the odds <laughs> yeah. are slightly better of getting long listed than most. But it's still um, an achievement Claire... and a wonderful prize. No, it's a brilliant achievement. Claire also writes flash fiction and short stories, and many have been shortlisted in competitions. She's won the BBC Opening Lines Short Story Competition and the Royal Academy Pin Drop Prize. Her fourth novel, Unsettled Ground, will be published in 2021. And in addition to being a wonderful writer, I can tell you that Claire is a good egg. <laughs> and I do not award good. egg status. That's true. Good eggery is lightly. Yeah. Claire, you do not Claire dispense is, it. Claire is a beacon of good humour and uh, common sense. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're also joined today by Will Atkins. Welcome back, Will. Hello, Andy. Welcome back. Hello, Will. Hello, Will. I should have said hello, Andy and Claire, and everyone else. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Will is the author of The Moor, about England's moorlands, and The Immeasurable World, a travel book about the world's deserts, which won last year's Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year Awards. Congratulations. He also writes for The Guardian, The FT, Harper's, and Granta. This is his second appearance on Backlisted. Uh, he joined us last year for our episode on Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, where one of my happiest memories is the look on his face when we um, played him <laughs> excerpts from Mike Reed's musical adaptation of Great Expectations, <laughs> sung by Darren Day. Yeah. He didn't really expect that's the way things were going to go. But, <laughs> <laughs> it was an but, unforgettable moment for me. But he too is a good egg. <laughs> Thank you. So we have two good eggs joining us today. Uh, John and I are both curate's eggs, I decided. We, I, should, I should hope so. That's kind of, and we're, we've got, uh, speaking of curate's eggs, the book they have chosen for us to discuss today is one close to your heart, Andy, this one. The Journal of a Disappointed Man by WNP Barbellion, published in 1919 by Chatter and Windus. Barbellion being the pseudonym of the writer and naturalist Bruce Frederick Cummings. Yes, I absolutely love this book. As long-time listeners will know, it's been on the podcast. It's been mentioned on the podcast several times. It might even have been mentioned on the very first episode of Backlisted uh, all those years ago. And, and it, uh, so you had it as your pinned tweet, a quote from this book for for a long time, maybe still there. I don't yes, I did have that. I had that passage pinned as a tweet. I mean, we're all quite highly strung at the moment, aren't we? I was going to read it out later. I will read it out later. But it's like one of my favourite things, not just from this book, but from any book. It's like a combination of a yell of rage at the sky and a mission statement and an idea of how to create you know, how to be an aesthetic person, how to approach your art and all those things. Look, let's be honest, 
this is the highlight of my week and year. And on some level, I, I we've engineered all of Batlisted so we could do this book on Batlisted. <laughs> no, no pressure, everyone. No. But this is this really is one of my favourite books. And so before we start, and, and before I ask John what he's been reading this week, I just want to say, I just want to ask my friend John Mitchinson, did you enjoy it? I absolutely loved it. It was, uh, I, it, it's one of those books that suddenly now kind of swum into the, if I ever think about journals or diaries or essential texts that you would want to give to somebody about the difficult process of moving out of childhood into, into adulthood, I think this is as great a book as, uh, on that subject that's ever been written. And, and the added, as we'll discuss, the added quality that it has of a man also in his early 20s having to, having to cope with illness and then uh, the, the, the onset of certain death makes it a, a, just a unique text. I would put it in the very close to the top of the, of the best books I've read in a very long time. This is the third time I've read it. And I went on and read The Last Diary as well, which we'll talk about. And um, I found it incredibly moving this time. Very, very moving. Con- context isn't a myth, is it? Who you are and where you are and what you're doing when you read a book. No. And whether you've read it before or not read it before. I mean, So this, I found this very powerful. Thank you for engineering it, Andy. I mean, it, I trust your judgment, obviously, but this is, this is something else, I think. But anyway. John. Yeah. John, anyway, come on. What have uh, I been let, reading? T- don't hold out on me. What have you been reading this week? Well, I decided to share something that I read on an almost constant basis. It's my, I think maybe my favourite reference book, so one of my favourite reference books. It's the Oxford Companion to Food by Alan Davidson. It's a sort of touchstone book for me because it showed me that reference doesn't have to be written by panels of faceless kind of North American academics. It can still be the, the heroic work of one human being, in this case, Alan Davidson, who was a diplomat, a British diplomat for many years, uh, with a kind of fantastic reputation for being eccentric. Um, He famously uh, cancelled a a banquet in Laos when he was uh, the ambassador there because he'd heard there was a a species of the giant catfish that had never never been seen, never been recorded by Western science, uh, had been caught in the north of the country, the Parbuk catfish so he cancelled the reception leave, left everybody went up north and was away for about three weeks found it sent the stuff back to the natural history museum of which more later with um, what he considered to be the eight outstanding mysteries that still were, were still unsolved about this fish he was relieved of his post but uh, diplomacy's loss was uh, gastronomy's gain because he went on <laughs> to write the three of the, I think, three of the great books on on Mediterranean seafood. Um, he was he was basically he'd made lots of notes about Mediterranean seafood, and he was put in touch with Jill Norman, the editor of the legendary Penguin Cookery Library, and she commissioned him turn that book into uh, Mediterranean seafood, and then after that came Seafood of Southeast Asia and North Atlantic seafood. But his magnum opus, which was commissioned by Oxford in 1976, it took him 22 years to write, is The Oxford Companion to Food. It starts with aardvark and it ends with zuppa inglese. (laughs) Every possible food stuff, preparation of food. There is not a single recipe in it. That's the only rule he set himself. He's just a glorious writer. He has a wonderful, humorous way of disemboweling um, what could be quite dry subjects, like you know the sort of boiling point of of fat and so on. He's he's wonderful. I'll read you two little tiny little bits so you get a bit of uh, the feeling for it. On garlic, he said, to say that by the end of the twentieth century, garlic had conquered the world would be something of an exaggeration. There are still ethnic and cultural groups, some in Britain and North America, for example who view it with dislike and distrust, who simply do not use it. But it is coming close to complete penetration of the kitchens of the world, and, if folklore is correct, its spread must be bringing ever closer the extinction of the vampire. <laughs> it's, just, it's just gorgeous to have that in a, in a reference book. Um, here he is on peas pudding, a, a foodstuff from my, uh, from my homeland up in the northeast, and this is what he has to say about it. It has been suggested that the old nursery rhyme, peas pudding hot, peas pudding cold, peas pudding in the pot nine days old, referred not to the inevitable appearance of the dish at all meals, but to the making of a fermented product, like a semi-solid version of Indonesian tempeh 
or a primitive form of Japanese miso. Certainly, if the procedure and the rhyme were followed, boiling, cooling and leaving for nine days, microorganisms naturally present would have caused some kind of fermentation to take place. But unless some kind of starter had been used, the most likely result would have been spoilage. <laughs> and there's another bit, and to find a little bit, was him on cheeks. He talks about cheeks, and cheeks are uh, included in stews, pies, and sausages. Because cheek muscles are exercised constantly, the meat needs to be tough and may need long cooking. Cod cheeks, on the other hand, are tender morsels, <laughs> perhaps because cod are not eating all the time and do not exercise their cheeks in making noises. <laughs> it's one of my favourite books. Is it, in, is it in print? Is it in print? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm pleased to say not only is it, is it a great book, it's also a book that will, I think, be there forever. Uh, has been revised twice. Anyway, okay. uh, that's, that's me. Andy, what have you been reading? I've been reading a new novel by Nikita Lalwani. Now, Nikita has been a guest on Backlist before. She came on with her friend Matt Thorne to talk about... Something Happened by Joseph Heller. And in fact, she's going to be with us next time. Uh, Matt and Nikita are coming back to talk about uh, The World According to Garp by John Irving. But I wanted to talk about Nikita's uh, new novel now because I didn't want to embarrass her by talking about it in front of her next time. Uh, I um, picked this up uh, out of interest and politeness and I put it down utterly gripped by it i thought it was completely wonderful and um it's called you people uh it was published by viking um in that absolute perfect time to publish a novel three weeks ago <laughs> so nikita has been working on this book for some time uh here it is it's arrived there are no bookshops open in currently in which you can buy it but there is an audio book. It's available on Kindle. It's getting really great reviews and it's absolutely terrific. So um, if you want a novel which is gripping and funny and moving and tremendously well-observed, which for a novel set in a pizzeria in South London yeah. <laughs> uh, is quite a claim. But nonetheless, I just thought it was so, so enjoyable. And... Um, it's a novel about a pizzeria that looks like any other Italian restaurant, but the chefs who make the pizzas and the people who work there are Sri Lankan, That's and right. half the kitchen staff are illegal immigrants. It's set about, I think it's set about 15 years ago, and at the centre is a character called Tuli, who is the proprietor of the restaurant. And I'll read you a little bit just from the... Uh, from quite early on, um, just to set the scene, uh, uh, the character here, Nia, is a waitress who works at the restaurant. In those days, they were all a bit in love with Thule, everyone who worked for him in the restaurant. They couldn't help it. Somehow it came with the territory, a solid admiration leavened with a kind of vulnerable, unrequited romance. Nia considered this oddity often, she really did mean all of them, male or female, front of house or in the kitchen, take your pick. The waiting staff, Ava from Spain, the gaggle of South Asian cooks, Shan, Rajan, Guna, Vasanthan, even Ashan, the clipped French Tamil guy who shared the lease with him, purveyor of crucial expertise from working at, quotes, the Pizza Express. This is how they appeared to her, even though, or maybe because... Thule was so infuriating and endearing in equal measure. It wasn't just because they were beholden to him. You could argue that he had rescued everyone who was there from something or someone. But this was more to do with his manner, with his way of being. Lovely, lovely. And actually what the novel is about, I think, is it's a novel about generosity of spirit and a novel that believes in people, whoever they are and wherever they come from and whatever they do. And regular listeners to this podcast will appreciate that. I haven't made that sound much like my sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, generosity of spirit, it doesn't usually float my boat. But I just, 
you know, I really believe in books that are, uh, uh, I really believe that you come to certain yeah, books yeah. Uh, when, or certain books find you when you need them at the moment you need to read them. And as the message of you people by Nikita Lalwani is fundamentally up with people, that's what yeah. I need to hear at the moment. And I'm sure what we all need to hear. So uh, it's great. And if you're going to buy it, buy it now. But about 50 pages in and I'm absolutely loving it. So it's funny, I had to do a um, chair a transatlantic book group, as you find yourself doing in these insane times, on Wednesday evening on Bernadine Evaristo's novel, Girl, Woman, Other, which I had to re- I'd read it last year and had to reread it again. Uh, and Nikita's a bit like Bernadine Evaristo in the same way that they make characters that that you immediately fall in love with. They make it look very, very simple to do. It it, it isn't. It's just such a it's such a gift, and the the feeling of sort of life. As I say, fifty pages in, that you know that pizzeria. You know, you, it's it's so familiar. It's so part of all our experiences of South London. But the characters are, are, are so vivid, so strong. So I'll definitely finish it. But great, good choice. Now. It's commercials. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. We're about to talk about The Journal of a Disappointed Man by WMP Barbellion. He is one of the first examples of the voice of the 20th century, the voice of the discontented yeah. man, the young person, the, the, yeah. the person who is thinking intellectually and spiritually simultaneously, and adolescence, a kind of projected adolescence. And, yeah. You know, I can find numerous examples of that. Let me ask our guests. Um, Will, when did you first hear read that particular voice when did you first find wmp barbellion i um it's quite clear i clear this memory actually of, of when i when i first came across the book is i was living in it's probably 20 years ago i guess uh, i was living in cardiff and i found this little sutton paperback of um of this book in oxfam or cancer research or somewhere like that and it had a picture of a of a young man in kind of flannels lounging in a meadow with a butterfly net beside him so kind of bucolic looking and i think the reason i was drawn to it was kind of partly the that 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 enticing title but also the first line which is um january the 3rd 1905 when he's he's a teenager and he writes I'm writing an essay on the life history of insects and have abandoned the idea of writing on how cats spend their time. <laughs> I know! <laughs> <laughs> the frankness, the unliteraryness, the childlike quality of that of that, that opening line, which I found seductive. But it sat on this book sat on my shelves, I think, probably for 10 years. And then I for whatever reason, probably the same reasons, rediscovered it and for a period became kind of totally obsessed with it. And I have a few copies just, um, you know, covered in annotations yeah. and post-it notes and and exclamation marks written in the in the, the margins. And, I mean, I think I have a habit of coming on onto your show and, and talking about books about which I attempted to write a book. And so I, talk, I was on here about great expectations uh, uh, last year and i i started this aborted book about the landscapes of great expectations which you know got nowhere and likewise i i had this idea 10 years ago writing a a, a book about barbellion who was this extraordinary character and then after probably a year of of sort of piecemeal sporadic research realized actually somebody's already written the the definitive biography of Barbellion, and that's that's Barbellion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, as you were saying, Andy, it, it's the kind of but you you come back to, and and I like you. I've been reading it in this this um, strange era of illness and incarceration where we're living through, and um, yeah, it's 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 profoundly moving. 
as it always is, but particularly now. So, um, you, Will, you mentioned the title. I think the title is uh, the first example of the genius of the book. I don't want to read any books that aren't called The Journal of a Disappointed Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the best possible title, isn't it? Uh, if you respond to the title, you're going to love the book. If you, if you understand the slightly Eeyore-ish humour at work. <laughs> Claire, when did you first uh, discover The Journal of a Disappointed Man? Well, it was definitely through Backlisted and your recommendation. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> but whether that was the first episode, you know, or the first episode combined with Twitter, because how, how long has Backlisted been going? Four years. Four years. Yeah. Okay. So I must have heard about it and then bought it and I read it in January last year. So January 2019. And I absolutely loved it. And I... I I keep track of uh, the books that I read on Goodreads and I write just a mini kind of little review really for myself just to remind myself what I've read and and that uh, and then at the end of the year I do a kind of my top 10 reads of the year and the journal of a disappointed man was in there of course but I just also want to read you just the very start of that of of the review from Goodreads that I wrote because it just kind of sums it all up for me so I wrote, I can't remember the last book where I underlined as many lines or laughed as much or <laughs> cried, actually cried, mm. quiet rolling tears while my husband slept beside me in bed. It's so, <laughs> so moving, so funny. He's just such a, a real character. And when, when I finished, I felt bereft. Mm. I really felt Completely. like I had lost him. Yeah. And yeah. and then I read it again, so I've read it a second time. And that was really interesting because I spotted so much more stuff and it was quite interesting to see about the edits because he had edited it, it himself. So the decisions he had made, I was kind of more aware of those the second time. That was very interesting. Mm. Because it's an, an autobiographical journal, I'm just going to read out the biography that's on the back of this vintage penguin edition uh-huh. of the journal of a disappointed man because it's interesting the there is a blurb which is quite good on the inside cover but the life is the blurb really yeah uh, to some extent so i'm going to read out the life first wnp barbellion was born in 1889 that's not his real name though is it his real name is bruce frederick cummings and he chose the name WNP Barbellion. The um, Barbellion was a uh, the name of a chain of sweet shops uh, in the in near the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. I just love that. It's so great. And and WNP stands for Wilhelm Nero Pilot. The names in his words of three, history's three greatest failures. <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm, the Emperor Nero and Pontius Pilate. He wrote to his brother on Christmas Day, 1917, to his brother Hal. And he said, and that, that's, he's just chosen the name Barbellion to, in, with which he's gonna, the book will be published. He knows it's going to be published. And he wrote to his brother, WNP Barbellion, exclamation mark. I think it is appropriately inflated and therefore extremely suitable, double exclamation mark. <laughs> and that is a real Barbellion thing, which we'll talk about. You know, the idea of, of a kind of very knowing inflation of self-dramatising persona, which is based on his actual persona, but isn't him. Anyway, his father was a newspaper reporter in a West Country town, unable to afford him any other education than that offered to a local private school. It was for this reason that the boy, although showing a remarkable interest in natural history, was apprenticed to his father as a reporter at the age of 16. He detested newspaper work and managed to find a job at the Marine Laboratory Plymouth for £60 a year, but had to throw it up when his father's illness left him responsible for his family. He persevered in his spare time studies, finally being offered a post at the South Kensington Natural History Museum in 1912. His health, never robust, grew steadily worse until he was told he had only a few years to live. It was under this sentence that he struggled with his biological work, that he married and that he completed this book. 
He died on the 31st of December 1919. John, what are some of the subjects of this book? <laughs> what is this book about? Well, this book is it is about being inside somebody's head first and foremost. I mean, it, it's it's full of incident. It's he starts in Devon working for his father, uh, as it were, kind of fitting his natural history, his naturalist kind of stuff around that work and, uh, as you said, hating it. He then makes the huge move to London and he spends a lot of time in London on his own, flirting with attractive women, going to concerts. One of the, the incidental pleasures of this book is he writes really wonderfully about music, I think. He's a, he, he goes to a lot of concerts mm. at the Albert Hall. There are sort of two narratives. There's a narrative of his, his development as a writer and then there is the, the narrative of illness. Even before he gets diagnosed in 1915 with multiple sclerosis, there's a sense of him being doomed, of his, of, of his illness, this, this panic about his heart, the, the sense I've never had the more visceral sense of what it must be like to be in a, inside a body that isn't working properly. And this causes him deep angst and anxiety uh, about his future, out of this comes a kind of a a sort of antic melancholy. But he is so Hamlet-like as well, you know, that kind of he amuses himself in order to distract himself from the kind of looming sense of his own mortality. And while he his his work, you know, he's very funny about his work on lice. It once he gets to London, that's what that's that's really where the the kind of the the, the, the book takes off. Um on March the 10th, 1919, in his journal, he wrote the following analysis of the Journal of a Disappointed Man. And um, Claire, I'm going to come to you after I read this out. Uh, maybe you would, you would uh, find something to read us which illustrates one of these points. So this is the author's analysis of his own work after he'd written it. The t- and these are the topics that he, think, <laughs> he thinks the book, are, book is about. One, ambition. Two, reflections on death. (laughs) Three, intellectual curiosity. Four, self-consciousness. Five, self-introspection. Six, zest of living. Seven, humour. Eight, shamelessness. (laughs) And he goes on to say, my confessions are shameless. I confess but I do not repent. The fact is my confessions are prompted not by ethical motives, but intellectual. The confessions are to me the interesting records of a self-investigator. That's so good. Do you think he successfully sums up his work? Well, that's a lot of stuff to take in. So, (laughs) yes, probably. He's definitely an investigator and has amazing skills of observation. I think the thing that's absolutely fascinating is for a book which is tremendously knowingly self-conscious, he even knows that to, that self-consciousness... Is, is his theme, yeah, yeah, yeah. ...is a topic of the book, yeah, right? Yeah. It's dolls within yeah, dolls, yeah, yeah. this book. It's trying to find a moment of truth, package it for the reader, then reflect upon the way it's been packaged for the reader then see the negative of that package as well, and then reflect back on that. Now, that sounds awful, <laughs> except it's, it's that wonderful ebbing and flowing yeah. of personality that comes off the page. And like you were saying, he's got such a brilliant eye. He, he, he can turn it on lice or himself or other or people. people. Yeah. yeah. Did you have an example, Claire? I have a really good lice example. <laughs> go, go. We love the lice. We love the lice. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love the lice. This is really short. So the other day, a member of the staff of the Lister Institute called to see me on a lousy matter and presently drew some live lice from his waistcoat pocket for me to see. <laughs> they were contained in pillboxes with little bits of muslin stretched across the open end through which the lice could thrust their little hypodermic needles when placed near the skin. He feeds them by putting these boxes into a specially constructed belt and at night ties the belt around his waist 
and all night sleeps in Elysium. He is not married. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right, though. That's that kind of brilliant mixture of the eye and yeah. the humour. Yeah, yeah. He really knows how to place a line, doesn't he? You know, at the end of that, that comment is just so utterly perfect. You can't not laugh aloud when you when you read that. You just what you were saying too about the editing as a, 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 and going back to your list, Andy, zest for living, which is um, which is such a key thing in the book. But here he is in the same year, nineteen fourteen, June the thirtieth. There are books which are dinosaurs, and it's interesting. Dinosaur doesn't have the same connotation in nineteen fourteen as it does now. For him, this was just something that was big and magnificent. There are books which are dinosaurs. Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. There are men who are dinosaurs. Balzac, completing his human comedy. Napoleon, Roosevelt. I like them all. I like express trains and motor lorries. I enjoy watching an iron girder swinging in the air or great cubes of ice caught up between iron pincers. I must always stop and watch these things. I like everything that is swift or immense. London, lightning, popo catapetal. I enjoy the smell of tar, of coal, of fried fish, of a brass band playing a Liszt Rhapsody. And why should these foolish maynards shout women's rights just because they burn down a church? All bonfires are delectable. Civilization and top hats bore me. My own life is like a tame rabbit's. If only I had a long tail to lash it in feline rage, I would return to nature. I could almost return to chaos. There are times when I feel so dour, I would wreck the universe if I could. Oh. And then it, and in brackets, he says, I could eat all the elephants of Hindustan and pick my teeth with the spire of Strasbourg Cathedral. 1917. Mm. After three years of Armageddon, I feel quite ready to go back to top hats and civilization. <laughs> It's so him, brilliant. He has this brilliant flourish, and then he says, "Actually, it was it was bullshit." After three years of war, I'd I'd, I'd go back to civilization. But I mean, it's amazing, right, listeners? Why are you even still listening? Get out to this? there! Why haven't you paused it? Why haven't you paused it? And go and buy the book because it's such a brilliant book. Every single thing that you're hearing, that the whole book yeah. is as good as this, right? It is not like Will. We just heard Claire reading an improbably uh, <laughs> revelatory and amusing passage about lice. Barbellion, I think, you know, you, you said to me before we recorded that one of the things that really appeals to you is he's sort of, he's a nature writer, but he's not... Um, um, Sentiment, no. Sentimental, is he? He doesn't have sentimentality in him. It's not, I don't think it's a kind of characteristic he, he possesses. There's an entry towards the beginning of, of, of the journal, and he writes, it's best for a man to try to be both poet and naturalist, not to be too much of a naturalist and so overlook the beauty of things or too much of a poet and so fail to understand them or even perceive those hidden beauties only revealed by close observation. So I think he he understood the kind of diversity of ways of understanding the natural world uh, and and his own condition for that matter. And I don't think he had very much patience with the idea of nature as a place one goes to as one might go to a church for kind of solace but at the same time I mean I I I live near a a bit of heathland and I was out there the other day and and on a blazing blue skied spring day and surrounded by this blazing yellow hook gorse and and it does feel like a gift Mm. sometimes and I think Barbellion is wonderful at kind of conveying both his fascination for the natural world as a scientist, but also this kind of effort he makes to to articulate the sheer kind of wonder and joy of of being in the natural world. I'll read a, a short bit from from an August entry. I think again fairly early on, so when he was still living in Devon before he he went to London, and he writes, "It's very hot." So went to S, wherever S may be, and bathed in the salmon pool, stretched myself out in the water, delighted to find that I had at last got to the very heart of the countryside. I was not just watching from the outside on the bank. I was in it and plunging in it too, up to my armpits. What did I care about the British Museum or zoology then? All but the last enemy and object of conquest I had overcome. For the moment, perhaps, even death himself was under the heel. 
I was immortal. In that minute, I was always prostrate in the stream, sunk deep in the bosom of old Mother Earth who cannot die. Brilliant. And so it's kind of over the top and exclamatory, but it's so characteristic of his honesty and this this kind of vein of pure love that stretches through yeah. this Mm, that vein of pure love beautiful, yes beautiful. yes I, I i agree so when the journal of a disappointed man was first published in 1919 it was a great success it was widely reviewed and um there was a, a follow-up volume and uh, then after barbellina died there was another volume and it's sort of come and gone from the public consciousness ever since but it was mentioned by Edward St. Aubin in his novel, Some Hope. And I've actually, I've read this passage out uh, before on Backlisted, but it's so good that I thought we could hear it again, but this time read by somebody who can actually read. This is uh, Alex Jennings. Oh, brilliant reading. From his reading of the um, Patrick Melrose novels. Patrick arrived downstairs before Johnny and ordered a glass of Perrier at the bar. Two middle-aged couples sat together at a nearby table. Patrick took his drink over to a small book-lined alcove in the corner of the room. Scanning the shelves, his eye fell on a volume called The Journal of a Disappointed Man, and next to it a second volume called More Journals of a Disappointed Man, and finally, by the same author, a third volume entitled Enjoying Life. How could a man who had made such a promising start to his career have ended up writing a book called Enjoying Life? Patrick took the offending volume from the shelf and read the first sentence that he saw. Verily, the flight of a gull is as magnificent as the Andes. Verily, murmured Patrick. Hi. Hello, Johnny, said Patrick, looking up from the page. I just found a book called enjoying life intriguing said johnny sitting down on the other side of the alcove i'm going to take it to my room and read it tomorrow it might save my life mind you i don't know why people get so fixated on happiness which always eludes them when there are so many other invigorating experiences available like rage jealousy disgust and so forth don't you want to be happy asked johnny well, when you put it like that, smiled Patrick. Oh, so good. Yeah, so good. Alex Jennings, please I read know. everything. <laughs> Alex Jennings, please read the journal he of this point. God, he would be good. Be, he would be yeah, so good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Claire, you said when you read it, you underlined bits and you laughed and you cried. What were the sorts of thing that really grabbed you? There's so much poignancy and pathos without, but but without losing his sense of humour. There's a way he looks at women mm. and <laughs> young young women, and I love how he looks at young. There's a there's an Irish woman oh, he yeah. sees in a at, a at a concert, and he even though she's with another man, he thinks there's some attraction between them, and he follows her, and then actually tries to put an advert <laughs> in the paper to find her, and it's just and the paper rejects it in case he's a white slave trader. Oh, it's, it's all that all that kind of stuff. Often how he looks, I think, at, at older women. He's he's a little bit derogatory. They often have fat legs or bandy legs, or they or they coo they coo too much at babies. But all that still, you know, I wasn't offended. It made me laugh. And and actually, I had to keep reminding myself that this man is twenty five or whatever age and unattached. You know, I I kept forgetting that this he was in his twenties, which is you know also kind of amazing. But there's, so there's a couple of bits I want to read out because as his health declines some of his observations change because he's no longer out in the world he can't see the people and as he becomes bedbound he then describes either what he remembers and still that is so utterly vivid amazingly vivid just from memory or he describes what he can see out of his window and then kind of in his final days he can only describe the sounds of what goes mm. past the window so mm. you know just mm. that decline in what he sees is so moving um so the first bit I want to read is just his observation of a woman on a bus, which is also funny as well. So it's on a bus the other day, a woman with a baby sat opposite. 
The baby bawled and the woman at once began to unlace herself, exposing a large red udder, which she swung into the baby's face. The infant, however, continued to cry and the woman said, Come on, there's a good boy. If you don't, I shall give it to the gentleman opposite. (laughs) (laughs) And there's one more line. Do I look ill-nourished? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's just brilliant. And then just kind of skipping forward a long way. 1917, I think he's 27. A perfect autumn morning, cool, fine and still. What sweet music a horse and cart make trundling slowly along a country road on a quiet morning. I listened to it in a happy mood of abstraction as it rolled on further and further away. I put my head out of the window so as to hear it up to the very last until a robin's notes relieved the nervous tension and helped me to resign myself to my loss. Peaceful. Just great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I think one of the things about the book actually um, is how well constructed it is. To be able to get these various types of entry to work together is incredibly artful. And we know that, indeed, he left lots of stuff out to create the book that he wanted to create. I mean, as I I found, uh, as as someone who's written memoir, I find his attitude to memoir totally extraordinary. He, He... he was a great admirer of the Russian uh, writer Mary Bashkirtseff. Yeah. He felt when he read Marie Bashkirtseff that 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 was speaking to him. And I I feel a bit about Barbellion as he seems to have felt about Mary Bashkirtseff. That there's something in the way John, you said I had this. This is what I had pinned to yeah, my Twitter. Yeah, read that. It's beautiful. This was an entry in June 1916. I toss these pages in the faces of timid furtive, respectable people and say, there, that's me. You may like it or lump it, but it's true. And I challenge you to follow suit, to flash the searchlight of your self-consciousness into every remotest corner of your life and invite everybody's inspection. Be candid, be honest, break down the partitions of your cubicle. Come out of your burrow, little worm. As we are all such worms, we should at least be honest worms. Glorious. I've got the hair, yeah. I've got the hair yeah, on yeah, my yeah. arm standing up yeah. on end, actually, yeah. while, I, while I read that. You know, the thing about the book is, we were talking about what's this book about. For me, I, I, I feel as though it's a book about the impossibility of knowing oneself yeah. in the round, of knowing oneself whole. But that, as a writer, one can fail gloriously in the attempt mm. to do it. Mm. You know that that it's a way of approaching the subject of the self, in the hope that, taken as a whole, it will add up into a human being. I think the attempt is entirely successful. When 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 you get near the end of the last diary, I mean, I know it's a cliche to say it's almost unreadable. I find it almost yeah. unreadable. Do you not think, I mean, I don't know what you feel, Will, you know, as the disease yeah. really takes hold of him. It's a painful book to read. Of course, painful because, because of his own, his own kind of agony and, and the rawness of his, his um, confrontation with himself and with his, his uh, predicament. But also in simply because of the kind of, the laser-like precision which, with which he describes life and, and the inevitability of his death, but death generally. And yes. the natural world. Yes. And the violence of the natural world and the human world and despair and confinement. And this, I mean, a disappointed man, but for me, above all, he's a, he's a frustrated man because... He has some extraordinary achievements, not least this 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 book in his life, um, and yet he's perpetually frustrated, and particularly towards the end, because this experience, which is so central to his character in his life, which is being in nature, 
being in that that um, that pool in the woods that I read about earlier on, for example, is denied him. And so, as you were saying, Claire, this sense of him being successively month by month, year by year, withdrawn from the world, and 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 in the end, just hearing bird bird song. Yeah. Of course, there's ex- extraordinary tragedy to that, but. But there's a kind of deathliness to this book from the very outset, even before he's ill. Definitely. I wonder how much of that was in the editing because, you know, how much of it's obviously hindsight. But, you know, he he was editing knowing he was really near the end. Um, So how much of that was kept in that for us to discover, very cleverly for us to discover, I I thought that was great. Mm. He knows what he's doing. I mean, I, you're right, I think, Andy, when you say he, the comprehension, but there's a beautiful bit very near the end where he says, in this journal, my pen is a delicate needle point, tracing out a graph of temperament mm. so as to show its daily fluctuations, grave and gay, up and down, lamentation and revelry, self-love and self-disgust. You get here all my thoughts and opinions, always irresponsible and often contradictory or mutually exclusive all my moods and vapours, all the varying reactions to the environment of this jelly, which is I, which is that wonderful thing. It's still the scientist, still looking at himself as a sort of an experiment. I mean, that's the thing. He, as a, he, he's dissecting himself as he's and, – and it's that's almost what makes it so moving. His, his, you know, he, he doesn't want to hide the worst of himself. It is the most remarkable book. Claire – I felt on this go round that one of the things that uh, creates the sense that Will was talking about, which is of not just of one life lived, but actually there's a universal sense in which uh, uh, we are seeing everybody's life passing mm. at speed before our eyes in this book. One of the reasons for that is he gets better as a writer as the book goes yeah. on. You know, there's a very interesting coming together of his diagnosis and his talent in 1917 is what I felt on this go round. Definitely, definitely, he he improves, um, and he, but but then he's also growing up. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's 13 when he starts the diary. That one would hope that you're a better writer at 29 than at 13, but his reflections on life and death and how that is universal um, are, are wonderful. And you, as a reader, it does make you, you know, every time I put the book down, I was reflecting how that affected me or, or the people around me and what's also what's going on at the moment yeah. mm. um, in the world. Yeah. So let me ask both our guests. Um, in his introduction, H.G. Wells... Um, refers to a thread of beauty which runs through the book and says that any sensitive reader will have spotted it, so there's no need for him to identify it. And then after Barbellion reads that, he records in his journey that he doesn't know what H.G. Wells is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered, I, so, and I wondered well, I, I've got a theory of what I think the thread of beauty is, but I wondered if anyone else has got a, a, a what is the thread of beauty in this book the, to which Wells is referring? Does anyone want to have a, theor- a try a theory? Will, I mean, you were referring, it's love. Love is the thing that you, you it's, think is the Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's the thread of beauty. It's, his, it's him. It's his character. It's his, it's his courage. It's not, it's not the natural world. For all those kind of um, detailed knowledgeable scholarly sometimes descriptions of of the natural world whether it's the countryside where he grew up in in in, in devon around barnstable or you know allows there's not that kind of lush laurentian descriptive prose about nature partly because he knows it so well mm. he knows what he's writing about in such detail yeah i think the the beauty is is in him and actually i i i was just thinking about I mean, everything at the moment, everything we read, everything we rock, watch, every work of art has this this heightened resonance somehow. 
every book I hear about, new book I hear about is a book for these times. But I was thinking about, I mean, reading this particular book at this moment and particularly looking at the entries for spring, for example, I found very powerful. I, I wondered as well, Claire, whether this this thread of beauty might refer to, I mean, one of the stories told in between the lines of the book is um, that of Barbellion's mm, wife. Helena, yeah. Yeah, perhaps, a, you know, love of other people, love of women. Uh, I did really enjoy the way that, that his love for Eleanor, his wife, really kind of crept up on him, didn't it? Yes. I thought that was very beautiful, that thread. But I, I don't know if it would be that because somehow that starts some somewhere halfway through, I think, yeah. Eleanor comes on the scene. There's a, a lady, a woman whose initial is M that he's desperately in love with at the beginning when he's just a teenager, I think. But that thread of beauty, yeah, maybe it is love of people and connections with people and then his love for Eleanor. And his love for his child was so poignant because he it felt like he really kept her at bay for a long time. And I thought, how can you not love your child? And then it just became so apparent that he was deliberately trying not to love her for her sake and for his, because it, that was just so difficult for him. That was very moving. But but then also, as Will said, maybe maybe it's the thread of beauty is courage, the courage to keep writing right up to yes. the end and recording yes. all of it, all of it in all its awfulness and its loveliness, maybe. And the wonder that I'm, I'm sure we've all enjoyed being gamed by H.G. Wells. <laughs> we can't, who knows? All these threads. <laughs> okay, so, um, of course, no discussion of the Journal of a Disappointed Man would be complete without mentioning the chroniclers of contemporary disappointment, those barbellions in song, Half Man, Half Biscuit. <laughs> Many Half Man, Half Biscuit lyrics deal with the disappointing nature of everyday life. Uh, backlisted listeners will, of course, be familiar with the song Baguette Dilemma for the Booker Prize Guy. Uh, um, but I thought I would share with you, the my uh, listeners uh, contributed to this, the top five countdown of disappointing Half Man, Half Biscuit songs. Uh, so at number five, the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. <laughs> Actually a line from a Robert Lowell poem. At number four, Westwood Ho, massive letdown. <laughs> At number three, uh, the classic All I Want for Christmas is a Dukla Prague Away kit. At number two, the Half Man, Half Biscuit song, The Lark Descending. <laughs> <laughs> and that means at number one from Na Half Man, Half Biscuit song, National Shite Day. There's a man with a mullet going mad with a mallet in millets. <laughs> Now that now that is a line. That is a line that could have come out of Barbellion. But you, well, you, there is that punk. There is that punk defiance in him, right to the end, isn't it? You pity me. Yeah, I pity yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I pity you with your stupid yeah. normal little life. Look what I've done. I've got a wife and a baby, and I'm still going. And I love it. It's it is the most energizing, exciting inspiring book to read I, I mean i speak as a, a reader and a, a personally as a writer on this there's this incredible bit near the end of his life where the book has been uh published and he's read his own reviews uh, do you remember <laughs> yeah. this april the 29th 1919 he says half in having cast my bread upon the waters it amuses me to find it returning with the calculable exactitude of a tidal movement for example, in my journal, I stroked public opinion and now it purrs to the tune of two and a half pages of review. The Saturday review I cursed with bell, book and candle and voila, they mangle me in their turn. <laughs> here we go. This is the sort of response to uh, uh, everyone here who's ever been reviewed will know. This is how you should approach your reviews, right? For the most part, the reviewers say what I have told them to say in the book. <laughs> One writes that it is a remarkable book. I told him it was. Another says that I am a conceited prig. I have said as much more than once. A third hints at the writer's inherent madness. 
I queried the same possibility. It is amusing to see the flat contradictions. There is no sort of unanimity of opinion about any part of my complex character. One says a genius, another not a genius. Witty, dull, vivacious, dismal, intolerably sad, happy, lewd, (laughs) finicky, quiet humour, wild and vivacious wit. Poor old reviewers. <laughs> Friends and relatives say I have not drawn my real self. But that's because I've taken my clothes off and they can't recognise me stark. This book this book is a self-portrait Dude. in the nude. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, that is what you want. You want to rage against not just the dying of the light, but all these people queuing up to tell you who you are and what you are that you already told them that they wouldn't know you if told, you hadn't yeah, given them so a clue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and yet I I do think that for all that kind of um, punky angst and, and that um, conceited priggishness that he 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 talks about, there's also that strand of real vulnerability. And boyishness, and and you're reminded, well, I am at least frequently that he's he is he's a young man, and um, I don't always believe him, and at the same time, I don't think he always wants us to believe him. There's a there's a mm. there's a kind of there's an adolescent quality to to the way he expresses his anger sometimes, which for all mm. the kind of his verbal sophistication is sometimes quite transparent, I think. And, and it's one of the reasons that the book is, is so moving and so tender, I think, is that you can sometimes see through him. Yeah, he, and Will, you're, you're so right. And he doesn't leave it out. That's the thing. He no. has that adolescent thing. What matters to the adolescent is the, is the need to be right in the moment. Yeah. Right? So when he's saying it in the diary, what matters to him is expressing the truth of the moment, imposing it upon the reader. And then the next entry, he'll say something like, yeah. oh, I've changed my mind uh, yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. it does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Always don't. Uh, it's glorious. Yeah. But all that publishing stuff, I, I mean, I agree with all that. But so wonderful to see that we have the same hang-ups about reviews <laughs> and about stuff coming late and you're just waiting for the postman for your proofs to come come on and then he gets he gets the letter from hg wells saying i hope you like the preface before the publisher has even sent in the preface oh i loved all that i could just yeah relate to all of that yeah yeah and there, Barbellion-like, we must end it prematurely. Thank you to Claire and William for helping us find luster in this amazing literary artefact. To Nikki Birch for enabling us to meet in five different locations but sound like we're in the same room. To Unbound for keeping the faith and buying us ice creams during the interval. I'm going to double down on that thanks to Nikki. Nikki is keeping the wheels on this particular rickety car at the moment. And the thing is, I voted for you as an independent candidate, Nick. <laughs> Um, oh, God. <laughs> oh, we're laughing at our own in yes. jokes. It's the sign of an excellent. We got episode. no choice. I got no choice. Sorry. I got no choice. You can download all 109 episodes, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And John and Nikki are always pleased if you contact them on Twitter and Facebook. You can now also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Uh, we started this so our listeners can help us keep backlisted afloat in uncertain times. We love doing the shows and we want to keep the quality high, but we don't want to depend on intrusive paid for adverts. So even a small gesture of financial support will help us do that. Plus, it offers loyal listeners a chance to hear regular episodes early and to make suggestions and ask questions and anything else that we can think of. For people who subscribe at the Lock Listener level, you pay a little more to get two extra episodes of Lock Listed a month, uh, off-piste rambling into film, TV and music as well as books. Value for money, we hope. Yeah, we've been amazed by the support so far, actually, and uh, it's been really fantastic to it has uh, have not just your cold, hard cash, 
but uh, also your messages of support Amazing. at the moment. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. It's a, a really, really touching. So thank you. And so as promised, here is the first list of subscriber names that we promised to read out. Here are the recklessly generous supporters first. Do <laughs> you want me to sing it? Oh. <laughs> to the backlisted theme tune. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it to on, the theme tune. On, the on. most honourable guild of backlisted's master storytellers. As of today, which is, I think, the 17th of April, 2020. Alison Timmins, Angela Brown, Annie Chihuahua, Brian Hamill, Claire Parsons, Craig Williams, Daisy Buchanan, Daniel Rivershees, Georgina Morley, Helen Brocklebank, James Owen, Janet Neal, John Byrne, Catherine Musket, Christina Tu, Liz Shepard, Louise Barrett, Lydia Gray, Matthew Adams, Matthew Moore, Nancy Morovitz, Nathan Kacheroff, Paul Callahan, <laughs> Paul Woodgate, and Richard Ashcroft, and Susan Reynolds. Thank you. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.